Well, uh, thank you very much, John, and well read. <laughs> that was wonderful. And good evening to you all, and thank you for your very warm welcome. It's a real honour for me to, to be here tonight and to speak to you, and it's good to, to see old friends as well and familiar faces. Thank you so much for your welcome. And if you could keep Ezekiel 28 open um, in your Bibles, that'll be really helpful as we go through this. Page 858. And uh, before we start, why don't we ask for God's help? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and we praise you so much for your word. Thank you that it is truth. Thank you that it is helpful for us. Thank you that it is relevant to us now, this very night. Father God, I pray that you would give us listening ears and listening hearts. Father God, may we be convicted, may we feel uncomfortable where we need to be, and and may we be encouraged where we need to be. Father God, above all, may we be enamored by the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity tonight to come under your word. I pray that you'd give me your words. Uh, May they be helpful and right, and may we go out of here feeling changed. We pray in your mighty name. Amen. Well, tonight, as you know, and as we've been saying, um, we are moving you on in your uh, series in Ezekiel that Andy has, I think, been leading you through. And tonight we pick up this um, remarkable chapter, um, chapter 28. And there's quite a gap between chapter 28 and chapter 16, where I think you left off last week. So I think it'll be helpful as we begin to get a, a, a bit, do a brief overview of the bits that you have missed out. Now, remember where we are as readers here. We are sitting with Ezekiel and the, uh, the Kibar Canal in Babylon. We are with the, the first lot of exiles from Judah that have come over to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. That's in the year 605 before Jesus was born. And these exiles uh, would have included Daniel and his, his three friends. These exiles are the sign of God's judgment over the sinful nation of God's chosen people. And, and in the meantime, back in Judah, the, the capital of which is Jerusalem, it's, it's surrounded on all sides by incredibly large and powerful nations, each with their own large and impressive leaders. And, and Babylon is the greatest. Babylon rules the roost of the ancient Near East. And puppet kings have been placed in Judah who do not follow Yahweh. Eventually, and and I think you're going to be reading this further in your series, in chapter 33, news finally gets back to the exiles that Jerusalem has been razed to the ground, utterly laid waste by the might of Nebuchadnezzar, and nothing but a few peasants remain of God's chosen land. And so the question over the whole book of Ezekiel is this, where is God? Or rather, how is God going to be with his people? There's no temple to worship in, and soon there is going to be no land to inhabit. One of the great Abrahamic promises of God to his people. Well, as Andy will have been reminding you in the, in the first third of this book from chapters 1 to 25, we, we see the, the judgment of Israel. And in that, God has been uh, weaning Ezekiel and the people of God off the temple, if you like. He's, he's wanting them to get their dependence off that building. The, the readers are in exile in a pagan land. There is no temple, but God is not lost. Because as we read, God is not confined to space. God shows himself, if you remember, in in vivid imagery of being in a mobile throne, 
dressed with all his might, his power, his wisdom and sovereignty that befits the God of heaven, not trapped in a wooden box, in a, in a square room, in a stone building, in a specific land. He is active. He is still working on behalf of his people. And tonight, as we move on into chapter 28, we move on into the, the middle big section of Ezekiel for the first time, and I think the only time. And, and this passage is, is a summary passage of everything that is going on in this middle part of Ezekiel. And here we move away from God's judgment over Israel to looking at God's judgment over the nations around Israel. And in so doing, we are moving away from God weaning his people off the temple to God having to wean his people off their dependence on these mighty and powerful nations around them. And that is where we come to the Prince of Tyre tonight. In short, we move away from God's glory not being in his rebellious city or his broken temple to looking at God's glory not being in the rebellious nations around Israel. And that's where we start tonight. Point one of three. God is telling the exiles that when you return, and return you will, don't trust in the power and the wisdom of the nations. It's quite a a, a striking chapter, this, isn't it, as, as John read it? Here in chapter 28, we have this prophecy and lament over the prince of Tyre. He is a mighty prince. You'll have, you'll have got that over a beautiful city. And he falls because of his incredible pride. And chapter 28 is, if you like, a, a summary chapter, as I said, of what is going on over the whole of this middle section from chapters 25 to 33. This whole section is dealing with the pride and the arrogance of the nations around Israel and their subsequent dramatic fall. Just flick back with me, if you will, to chapter 25. And this is helpful. We'll be here briefly, but it's helpful. And you'll see a list of nations mentioned against whom God promises to bring judgment. We have Ammon and Moab and Zaire and Edom and Philistia. And here we also see the reason why God is bringing judgment here in chapter 25. It's because they were mocking Israel for her demise. Um, forgive me, I, I've prepared this from the ESV, so, so some of this might not scan so well, but we're absolutely fine with that. Just read with me from chapter 25, verses 2 to 4. Son of man, set your face towards the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was profaned, and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah when they went into exile, therefore behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east for a possession. And with every nation... A similar frame is spoken of Tyre. We read in chapter 26, verse 2, Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gate of the peoples is broken. It has swung open to me. I shall be replenished by her now that she is laid waste. Even though Israel has been judged, and rightly so, as we saw in chapter 26, uh, 16 last week, because of Israel's incredible unfaithfulness, God is still not going to allow the arrogant nations around his people to mock them and deride them, thinking that they are any better. And so God is bringing judgment on them because of their pride and to show that only he has the right to judge. 
And in the midst of all these nations that are mentioned, there are two that stand out in heavy detail. And the first is Tyre. And starting in chapter 25, we have three chapters dedicated to this one city alone. We have a prophecy of destruction against Tyre, followed by a lament over her. And then we have a prophecy of destruction over the prince of Tyre and a lament over him. And exactly the same thing happens if you flip forward in your Bibles to Egypt and Pharaoh, another four whole chapters dedicated to this one nation and its ruler with the same pattern, prophecy of destruction and lament. In other words, you have two mighty nations, two leaders, two prophecies, two laments, one outcome, judgment and death. And these two nations are highlighted in more detail than the rest because it was these two nations to whom Israel was constantly going to for help in times of trouble rather than turning to Yahweh. All the way back from the time of the patriarchs, the people of God kept fleeing to Egypt in times of drought and famine. Under the exodus with Moses very early on, The people of God grumbled constantly about wanting to go back and to eat the meat of Egypt. It was also the case with Tyre. During the age of the later kings of Israel and Judah, many of them signed peace accords with Egypt and Tyre to help fend off the Assyrians or the Babylonians. These nations were seen as powerful, and Israel loved them for it. Israel loved the power and the security they offered. Furthermore, it wasn't just their power and security the people fled to. It was also their grandeur and their wisdom, their place on the the world stage that they desired. Israel wanted to look like these nations and behave like these nations. It's the uh, men of Israel that cry out to God under Samuel the judge, saying, give us a king over us so that we may be strong like the other nations. And so it was under Omri, king of Israel, a truly evil king, where the ultimate capitulation to Tyre was won when Omri gave his son Ahab, if you remember, in marriage of monetary and military convenience to the princess of Tyre, Jezebel. He, as we know, brought into the land pagan gods, idol worship, Asherah poles, and ultimately enacted the systematic destruction of all but a few of God's prophets. The turning to Tyre or the the turning to Egypt, the seeking after their power and their wisdom became an addiction to the people of God. Until, as a consequence, the people of God were barely recognizable as being distinct in any way from the nations around them. That was never how you were meant to live, says Yahweh. All the way through the Old Testament, he says that. You were never meant to flee to those nations in times of trouble. You were always meant to depend on me. I am your wisdom and your power. I am meant to be your God and your king. Not Tyre, not Egypt, me. But the people didn't listen. And so the people were judged. But now it is time for these nations to be judged. 
And in so doing, Israel is being weaned off being dependent on them as God reveals their fragility in considerable depth. Let's have a look at this Prince of Tyre in a bit more detail. And and the language is astonishing. Read with me from verses 2 to 5. As I say, I'll be reading from the, the ESV. Because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God... I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no god, though you make your heart like the heart of a god. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. You can really understand why people would have marveled at someone like the Prince of Tyre. God confirms here that this man was was almost wiser than Daniel. You're meant to picture the Daniel here, rising through Babylon as we speak. He's already known for his wisdom and his prescience. And because of the prince's wisdom, he's become powerful. He is wealthy. He's got gold and silver and treasures. He has increased his trade. And Tyre, as some of you will know, was, was the trading capital of, of the ancient Near East. It was with Tyre that David and Solomon themselves traded for the building of the temple and palaces. In fact, turn back to chapter 27 and just read the description of the city of Tyre itself. And I'm just going to flick through some of these verses really quickly, but it is helpful. Verse 3, O Tyre, you have said I am perfect in beauty. Verse 5, they took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Verse 6, of oaks of Bashan, they made your oars. Verse 7, of fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail, serving as your banner. Verse 8, the inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers. Your skilled men, O Tyre, were in you. They were your pilots. Tyre is portrayed as a beautiful ship. Filled with skilled workers and beautiful cargo, ruling the waves and turning heads. And so the Prince of Tyre is her captain, charging, charting her ways and making her great, godlike, untouchable and mighty, wise and powerful. And Israel loved her for it. Tyre and her prince and their wisdom and their power are so very attractive. And God is warning the exiles, when you return, don't run to her. And so that same word is being spoken over us in this room tonight, isn't it? Don't seek the wisdom and the power of the world. Because the truth is, like Israel, so often we are very tempted to. What are we as Christians smitten by? What power or glory or intelligence or wisdom or spirit of the age are we attracted by? Who is it that we're tempted to, to turn to for our security and our safety? Who is it I'm wanting to be seen with, wanting to trade with, wanting to be friends with? Who is it that I'm tempted to marvel at in the world and desire to be like in every way? Who do I want to mimic? like the men of Israel calling God for their own king, just to be like them. Because the temptation to run to Tyre is enormous. In fact, I would go so far as to say that this is probably our greatest battle we face as Christians, as individuals and as a church. 
in this day and age, in the strutting pride of secular wisdom and naturalism and materialism and success and progress and acceptance and conformity and power, where as Christians we're on the wrong side of public opinion and discourse, where are we tempted to seek the power and wisdom of the world in order for us to blend in and feel safe? It is so desperately difficult. From the playground where my two-year-old son is already conforming to the people around him. To the child at primary school who sticks out like a sore thumb because they tell their friends they're Christians and they're laughed at. To the teenager who doesn't go out drinking or sleep around. To the student at university who is ridiculed for her faith in front of a class. To the man at work who doesn't lie and cheat his way to the top. To those who sit in the Hammersmith Apollo on a, on a Friday night and hear secular comedian after secular comedian trashing God and making fun of Christianity from the safety net of being right. It would be so much easier to give in, wouldn't it? To be like everyone else. To be seen as wise and right in the eyes of the world. To be seen as safe and not dangerous. It would be so much easier to be able to reap the wealth and power and security of the world, to have them on my side for a change, rather than remain spiritually distinctive and entirely different, and often on the the wrong side of public argument. Do you feel that? I absolutely do. Living a distinctive life for Christ in a massive secular world is terrifying at times. And the reason we feel like this is because we seem so small. And the wisdom and power of the world seems so big and overwhelming and inviting. This is exactly how the exiles and the people of God would have felt. Can you imagine them going back home to rubble and dust? a decimated city. The immediate desire would have been to cozy up to these well-established nations and just to get some support, only for a while. So we, in our weakness as Christians in a secular age, may be tempted to cozy up to the world just to feel safe, not so on our own, just for a while. And not only that, but the wisdom of the world genuinely seems to be working. It is attractive because it doesn't seem to come up against any worldly pressures. It does seem to produce wealth and power and security, just like the Prince of Tyre, successful, untouchable, what we wouldn't give to be like that, we think. It would be so easy. The world seems so wise. It seems so secure. It seems so right. This corporate, secular, golden, liberal age is a beautiful ship upon which everyone marvels. And I am tempted every day to get on board. But this is not just true for us as individuals, is it? It is also absolutely true for the church. And we know painfully well 
The temptation for the church to run to the power and wisdom of the world is great indeed. Heartbreakingly, we have seen that in all its desperation over these past few years, this very week in Scotland. We cannot move from this passage without calling that out. Ian Duguid writes something deeply profound, words that were written about 18 years ago. They could have been written yesterday. He, he says of the church in his commentary on this passage, the love of power and wisdom can also infiltrate the church. Church leaders or denominational structures can easily be elevated six feet above contradiction, whereby they conform to the world in order to feel safe. When a decision is made that goes against scripture, what do we say? We need to say Jesus is king. And his wisdom is expressed in the scriptures. And if the Bible says so, I must believe it, no matter what the experts or the powers say. As Martin Luther put it in his famous declaration to the Diet of Worms, here I stand, my conscience is captive to the word of God, and I will do no other. How devastatingly appropriate. Are we as individuals, as a church captive to the word of God, over and above captivity to the world, do we see God and his word as greater than the wisdom and power of the nations? Do we really? Do we trust in the Bible more than we trust in denomination, more than we trust in church structures, more than we trust in the world? Do we really? Do we really trust in Jesus Christ and his wisdom, 1 Corinthians 2, that seems so foolish in the light of everyone around us, but is wiser than man's wisdom and is stronger than man's strength. Do you really believe that? When you return, says Ezekiel to the exiles, don't trust in the wisdom and power of the nations. When you leave through those doors tonight, don't trust in the perceived wisdom and power of the world. Don't, don't give in. Don't conform. As a Christian in your weakness and in fear of the wisdom and power of the world, do not seek to run to it. Remain distinctive. Why? Because, point two, the proud and the powerful are going to be judged severely. This is where God reveals the true state of the nations. Don't be fooled by appearances, Israel, because look at what is coming to Tyre and the other powerful and wise nations of the earth. Their wisdom and power have gone to their heads and they have become proud and so they will fall dramatically. Read with me again verse 2. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God. And because of this, says God, verse 6, because you have made your heart like a God, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down in the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say then, I am a God? Your fall, mighty prince, is going to be so great, verse 19, that all who know you among the peoples will be appalled at you. In short, exiles of the people of God don't envy the nations. 
To us sitting here tonight, don't envy the proud in the world who look better than you or who are more successful than you or seem to have life sorted. They may look great. They may seem wise. They may seem powerful. Indeed, it looks like it's all working out for them. But their pride and their arrogance will bring them down. They will face my judgment, says Yahweh. And just look at this judgment. We see it prophesied in verses 1 to 10. But the lament over the prince of Tyre, verses 11 to 19, is placed here to show just how great and devastating his fall will be. Read the language of God that he pours over this prince from verse 12. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. This is remarkable language to describe a human ruler, isn't it? Now, many of you may recognize this is the passage that that a lot of people say talks of the fall of Satan. And and there is that connotation here, I think. Um, There is the language of God casting out a mighty power of of perfection that, that, that has fallen. But I think what God is doing here in its immediate sense is setting up the Prince of Tyre to such gargantuan proportions so as to fully highlight his incredible pride and his even greater downfall as a consequence. And remember what God is doing to the people of God all the time. He is weaning them off their incredibly high view of the nations. The Israelites genuinely viewed these nations and leaders as a replacement for Yahweh in their affections and in their security. And so Yahweh has to start off with their overinflated view of the Prince of Tyre, um, if you like. And then he has to pop it so that it explodes in their faces as he charts this extraordinary demise. So God likens this prince to perfection. He puts this prince in the Garden of Eden as if he was the first among men. He was made a little lower than the angels, just as Adam was. He was wisdom unparalleled. In short, there's no equal to this man. Such are the heights of this man. And in that light, such is the downfall of this man. Verse 16. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst and it consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. This man could not have been any higher. And his fall, therefore, could not have been any more dramatic. This this passage isn't saying that the king of Tyre was an angel, and neither, as I said, is it principally about Satan, but it is setting up this poetic, dramatic extreme for us to witness. 
As one commentator puts it, the king of Tyre is no more literally the first creature of creation and the cherub of the garden than Tyre is itself literally a merchant ship. These images merely exploit the possibilities that are inherent in this situation. Ships can sink. Paradise can be lost. In each case, the perfection of the initial state of both land and king is magnified to hyperbolic proportions in order to underscore the incredible calamity when it comes from God. In other words, oh, how the mighty have fallen. You want to see where pride and wisdom and power leaves these men, says Yahweh? Well, look at where they were. Look at where you longed them to be. Seemingly perfect and untouchable and radiant. Look at where they're going to end up. In pits, slain by foreigners, appalling to all who knew them. God has literally shipwrecked Tyre and her captain because of their pride. Don't envy the proud and the powerful. Don't put your trust in these proud nations because they are going to be judged. And what of their wisdom and pride and power then? St. Pete's don't trust in the pride of the world. The pride that says God is dead. The pride that says the church is no more. We have society sorted and exactly where we need it to be. Because the pride of the world is going to be judged. Politics, money, success, power, secular wisdom, philosophy, corporations, it's all going to be gone. Shipwrecked in the judgment of God. But let's be very careful where we're pointing our fingers. Because there's something else going on here. Remember, this is a lament. So this is meant to be really sad. We don't gloat. We weep. We're meant to despair at the loss of such grandeur due to arrogance. Just as we look on Adam, the the literal first man, and despair as we see the loss of his grandeur due to arrogance. That's what this passage is reminding us of. That's why God uses the language of the Garden of Eden and of the cherub. He is likening the king of Tyre to Adam, who in turn is what? The representative of all of mankind. In other words, Ezekiel, as you speak to the people of God about the prince of Tyre, Remind them of the incredible sadness that pride and sin leads to. As it takes a man from incredible glory to incredible despair. The pride of man, isn't it, is the placing on himself on a par with God. Which is exactly what the king of Tyre does. Which is exactly what Adam does. Which is exactly what the people of God did when they went after the nations of the world which is exactly what we do when we conform and trust in the wisdom of the world or in our own wisdom and power. All this pride, all of this turning full sail away from the creator God into our own devices, all of that will be judged. Therefore, and this is really important, Not only is trusting in the wisdom and power of the nations futile as we see them fail, but anyone who becomes like them in their arrogance and pride will receive the same judgment. 
Why is it Ezekiel is reading this prophecy to exiles in a pagan land? Because the people of God sought the wisdom and power of the world over seeking and trusting in the Lord their God. Indeed, this is the problem of the whole of mankind. Romans 1.21 For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The nations have been judged for their pride, but so had Israel. By desiring the other nations, they had replaced the glory of their God with created things, replaced the truth of their God with the lie that the nations were better equipped to look after them. But furthermore, they had been judged because they had become proud. Often throughout the prophets where judgment is called over the nation, the people of God turn around and say, you're wrong, prophet. God won't judge us. God won't punish us. God won't take us into exile because he's established his covenant and we're safe. We are too important to be removed by God. We are God's chosen people. When an individual or a church or a denomination says that, then we are in dangerous territory. Pride offends God, whoever we are, whether we're Christians or not here tonight. For God's people, they presumed on their status and religion, and so they thought they were untouchable. For the king of Tyre, he thought he was literally a God. He presumed on all his status and his wealth, and so he thought he was untouchable. Both proud before God, both seeking and trusting in the wisdom and power of mankind as opposed to seeking and trusting in Yahweh. And so can you see what God is really doing here? He's revealing the ugliness of both religious identity and false religiosity and secular power and wisdom and presenting themselves as one and the same thing. That's what he's doing. For the religious, I can get to God on my own. For the secularist, there is no God. Or in other words, I am my own God. Both take the place of God. Can you see that? Both are wrapped up in pride and both will be judged. So the question for us tonight is, where do we stand as individuals and as a church? Are you rocking up at church going through the motions going to a small group, maybe even reading your Bible, maybe even preaching from a pulpit. But in reality, you're trusting in and conforming to the world and its power and wisdom and refusing to put your trust solely in Jesus Christ. Priding in your own efforts rather than leaning on Jesus. Being part of church community isn't enough. As the people of God found out, don't stand on your pride. Or are you someone here tonight who's never considered God at all before? Well, let me ask you, are you entirely content that what you've built up for yourself is going to get you through life and beyond? Can you absolutely trust that everything that you have built your life on will not be taken from you tomorrow? Because the Bible says that is a really foolish thing to believe. 
having wisdom and power and wealth, being seen as right and strong in the world's eyes isn't enough, as the king of Tyre found out. Don't stand on your pride. The question is then, what do we stand on? Well, point one, we don't trust in the power and the wisdom of the nations. Because point two, the proud and the powerful are going to be judged. So, point three, instead, trust in the faithfulness and promise of God, which leads to hope and security. Wonderfully, right at the end of this oracle, we see a remarkable refrain that, if we're honest, we have been longing for in the book of Ezekiel. And it comes in the last two verses that we haven't yet read, like water to a parched soul, verses 25 and 26 of chapter 28. Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples amongst whom they were scattered and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I give to my servant Jacob. And they shall dwell securely in it. And they shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. What was our question right at the beginning? Will God be with his people? Yes, he absolutely will be. And God's promise given all those years to Abraham back in Genesis 12 that there will be land and a people and immeasurable blessing, it has not been forgotten. This passage is, is meant to be an incredible encouragement for the people of God as they wait, small and insignificant, in exile in a pagan land. Waiting, small and insignificant, when they return, sitting in the rubble and ruin of Jerusalem. What did they have to hold on to? Literally nothing but the promise of God. And so God has to remove the glitz of all the nations from their minds in order for them to see that his promises, his faithfulness, is so much better. And that he, not the nations, will be their security and will protect their borders and will establish their prosperity. Indeed, God reveals this judgment on the nations in order, verse 26, that they will know that he is the Lord their God. Even after their incredible sin, their reliance on the nations, their religiosity, their pride, God had not forgotten his people. And he was going to bring them back. And the nations to whom they may have run to are now displayed in all their desperation and failure against a God who is displayed in all his faithfulness and security. But as much as it would have slowly increased their confidence as the exiles on the Kabar Canal heard the strains of God's promise again, coming over them after so much deserved judgment and warning, so it is of even greater significance, is it not? And confidence for us who have seen the promise ratified in Jesus Christ. As much as God's promise was fulfilled to the exiles as they returned to Jerusalem in the sight of the nations, so we see it in an even greater, fuller light in Jesus Christ as God's people are spread all over the world as the church, the new Israel, saved by him. 
But we are still waiting, aren't we? Peter still gives us the name exiles. We are sojourners passing through this world, in it but not of it, waiting small and insignificant for God's final consumption of the promise in the new earth. And so in our waiting for Christ's final kingdom, we outcasts and exiles, surrounded like the people of God were by the wisdom of the earth, surrounded by the hubris of the spirit of the age, when we're coming up against the pride of the world in our classrooms and our workplaces on the BBC, even in the church, we hold on to the promise of God, Jesus Christ, who wasn't what the world expected. He wasn't clever. He wasn't an intellectual. He wasn't a businessman or a politician. He was a carpenter who didn't smite Rome and reclaim Israel as expected. Rather, he died a cursed death on a cross in humiliation. What utter foolishness that seems. But no, says Paul, what incredible wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. How incredibly appropriate that we come to the Lord's table tonight. What is it that we are remembering? Not a mighty prince like Tyre, but a crucified servant, seemingly weak, behind whom is hidden the wisdom of the ages and the true God of eternity. Paul finishes his discourse in Corinthians with this. Let the one who boasts, therefore, boast in the Lord. Who do we boast in tonight? As we visibly see uh, represented in bread and wine, the broken body and the blood of Jesus that looks incredibly weak. Who do I boast in tonight? Are we like the Prince of Tyre? Boasting in our own achievements effectively naming ourselves of God? Are we like the people of God, boasting in our own religiousness, being propped up by the respectability of the church? Or are we like the returning exiles in the middle of a worldly storm of power, secular wisdom and materialism, holding on to Jesus Christ, the promise of a faithful God, the servant king, the one who suffered and before the world boasting and trusting in him? as our wisdom and our power. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and praise you so much for your words tonight. Heavenly Father, help us please to heed this warning. Lord, for those uh, sins and temptations that really are ensnaring us, Father God, please, please help us deal with them. Help us not to stand on our pride and, and, and think we are okay with getting away with that kind of stuff. 
Father God, please help us to turn to your wisdom and your strength to help us. Father God, help us not to be won over by the perceived wisdom and the power of the world. Father, help us not to conform. Please, please help us to be distinctive. Father God, above all, may we be enamoured by the Lord Jesus Christ, who looked so weak, but who was so wise and so powerful. Father God, please, may we be won over by Jesus Christ again tonight, afresh and anew, so that we can go out of here feeling more confident in him and willing to speak of him. We pray all these things with great thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you, Sam.